0: The following resource is from Welford Baptist Church. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and go to the New Testament book of 2 Peter chapter 1 for our message, Confidence in Uncertainty. The shattered daughter of a man killed in the Colorado supermarket massacre shared heartbreaking photos yesterday of her dad walking her down the aisle at her wedding last summer. I'm heartbroken to announce that my dad, my hero, Kevin Mahoney, was killed in the King Supers shooting in my hometown of Boulder, Colorado. Erica Mahoney wrote in a tweet above a snapshot of the pair at her wedding, My dad represents all things love. I'm so thankful he could walk me down the aisle last summer. Mahoney then added that she is now pregnant with a daughter her father will never know. I know he wants me to be strong for his granddaughter, she said. And our thoughts and prayers go out to the families of all 10 victims killed in the Boulder King Supers shooting. These include three grocery store workers, a local small business owner, a local actress, and a police officer, and ranged in age from 20 to 65. You know, the experiences of our lives can be so unpredictable, changeable, and frightful. And in many ways, life can be mysterious, uncertain, and require a bold spirit on our part to face each day. The spiritual life, said Howard Macy, cannot be made suburban. It is always frontier, and we who live in it must accept and even rejoice that it remains untamed." And Indeed, just because it is wild and mysterious and untamed and uncertain does not mean it has to be feared or worse yet, avoided. Jesus said that we are to be those that boldly ask and seek and, and knock and that we're to steer directly into the spiritual frontier that awaits us each day. Oswald Chamber said this, Naturally, we are inclined to be so mathematical and calculating that we look upon uncertainty as a bad thing. We imagine that we have to reach some end, but that is not the nature of spiritual life. The nature of spiritual life is that we are certain in our uncertainty. Certainty is the mark of the common sense life. Gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God means that we are uncertain in all our ways. We do not know what a day may bring forth. This is generally said with a sigh of sadness. It should be rather an expression of breathless expectation. We are uncertain of the next step, but we are certain of God. Simon Peter certainly understood the struggles we as Christians experience in our pursuit To live holy Christian lives, not working for salvation. We already have that. Working out of of a position of salvation. So, with that thought in mind, he diligently affirms the value and the worth of all our struggles and all of our efforts by giving us some assurances of the confidence that we can have in Christ. During the first part of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, No safety devices were installed underneath. Twenty-three men fell to their deaths. For the last part of the project, a large net at a cost of $100,000 was used, and at least ten fell into it. But they were all saved. An interesting fact is that 25% more work was accomplished when the men were assured of their safety. So here's your big idea for tonight. Knowing how our life will end gives us hope and courage to live it confidently. What assurances do we have that can provide inner confidence for living the Christian life in the midst of so much uncertainty? Well, think about this. We've reached the midpoint of this week. Here it is Wednesday evening and we're a step closer to tomorrow, Thursday. And while we certainly all have plans for what we plan to do tomorrow, and and we recognize that there are certain things we want to do, we also recognize that what happens tomorrow is uncertain. With all that's happened over this past year, it's understandable if we don't have complete confidence of what will happen tomorrow. For all we know, there could be a new virus outbreak this week that's worse than the previous one. The economy. The economy. Could totally collapse and leave us all changed forever. A lot could happen that we have little, if any, control over. Isn't there there's something that we can find confidence in? Is there some way that we can have a, a solid foundation to face the future? Well, fortunately there is. There's something that makes all the difference in the world when it comes to facing an uncertain future. And the Bible tells us it is the prophetic word of God. Listen to God's promise. Read along in your Bibles. We're going to read verses 16 through 21 of 2 Peter 1. I hope you have your Bibles open in front of you. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here's the truth that we see from verse 16. There's an unbreakable relationship between the Bible and the Holy Spirit. Thus we need both to guide us. Look at verse 16 again. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. So Peter's arguing that that someone who claims to have the Holy Spirit must agree with the Word of God, or else they're making themselves out to be a liar. And this is really, really important. Peter's also saying that in his own preaching, his own declaration of who Jesus was, it had to be matched up with what Scripture said. That's why it's so important for whoever you're listening to, whether it's reading Peter or reading me or or, or hearing me or hearing some other speaker, that you make sure it matches up with what God says. And let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, but the basic argument is people who talk about God need to agree with what God says in in His Word. If they're not in agreement, then something is certainly not wrong with God's word, but it's wrong with the teaching and the person. So let's see if we can follow Peter's argument. The great truth of salvation is that salvation by Christ is not a myth. It is the work of God's power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, notice how he highlights in verse 1 this word myth. He says cleverly devised myth. The gospel of salvation, according to scriptures, is not a fable. It's not a fictional story. It's not some creation in the idea of man. It's not an invention of man's imagination. It has not been thought up in order to give man peace and security and love and morality and goodness and justice and life. All those things are certainly offered to us if we freely receive them, but not from any man's ideas or his thoughts or his opinions. God wants to get out there on the table from the very beginning that man has created certain value systems and laws and religions, but that's not who God is. That's not what God has provided for us. And in man's idea, he has his own religion, his own value systems, his, his own idea of what good behavior is, his own science and technology, his own education and social services. But there's one terrible flaw with all of those things. None of those things are permanent. None of those things last forever. People cry out for an abundance of, of truth and an abundance of security in and, and life. But when we die and we leave this world and go into the next, if we depend upon anything that's man-made, we're going to be lost forever. Why? Because no person can find life beyond the grave on their own. This means something. If we're going to, to meet our needs in life, if we're going to live abundantly now and in the next world, then God has to show us how to do that. God has to reveal himself in his word. He has to step down out of another dimension. And he has to come to where we are. And he has to reveal himself. And that's what God has, has done. He was so interested in us. He didn't stay in heaven. He sent Jesus down from heaven to live among us and to die for us. He's revealed himself in how we can reach God through his son, Jesus Christ. And there's no other way. Jesus said it. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So the gospel of salvation, it's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's not a a cunning device of man's imagination that's deceiving people. It's the truth that God loves us and has revealed himself to us. Notice next, experiences eventually fade, but God's word endures forever. Look at uh, verse 17 again down through the first part of verse 19. Peter writes, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we had the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now the event to which Peter is referring to here is the transfiguration where Jesus' deity Shown through his humanity, wouldn't it be an amazing thing to hear a voice from heaven and to see the radiant Son of God glowing as he talks to Elijah and Moses? Don't you wish you could have been there? That would have been great. Yet Peter, who was there, who experienced all of this, you know what? He says there's something even better than that. Let me ask you this. If someone offered you the choice of either being on this holy mountain with Jesus, seeing Moses and Elijah, hearing a voice from heaven, or having the Old Testament scriptures in your hand, most of us would probably choose to see Jesus and experience him and hear the voice from heaven. But Peter would choose otherwise. Why? Because experiences fade, but the word of God lasts forever. You see, the problem with experiences is that they, all they to produce is a craving for more. <laughs> you do something you enjoy, that's a great experience, right? But it ends. And you want to have that experience again. You want to have something even better, something even more enjoyable. How do I know? Because the people who saw more experiences about God's amazing, miraculous, supernatural work, there's no one more than the children of Israel. Think about it. They saw God part the Red Sea. They were fed directly from heaven. Bread just fell down out of the sky. They saw miracles constantly. Yet why couldn't they enter the promised land? Because of unbelief. According to Hebrews 3.19. As I was preparing for tonight, I thought about it in my own imagination. I can just see Moses gathering all the people together from the Jewish race and saying, you know, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Which one do you want first? And they say, of course, the good news. And Moses says, just 40 laps around the wilderness for disobeying God and you can enter the promised land. And they say, well, then what's the bad news? And he says, each lap takes a year. (laughs) In the transfiguration of Christ, if it had never taken place the prophetic scriptures would still stand and prove that Jesus is the Savior of the world. But if the prophetic scriptures did not exist, the transfiguration by itself would not be much proof that Christ is the Savior. The transfiguration itself is substantiated and supported in the Word of God. So the prophetic word Helps tremendously to explain who Christ is and what was happening on the transfiguration of this holy mountain. You know, having lived a long time, I I would much rather hear a great Bible study and be fed spiritually from the scriptures than have a bunch of uh, emotional experiences taking place. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize that, you know, experiences, they fade away. In fact, isn't it true, we don't always remember our experiences. There are things that have happened to us. They were good things. They faded away. They don't last. The text assures us of the authority and the inerrancy of the scriptures because it shows us holy men of God did not write of their own opinion, their own ideas, their own imaginations, their own thoughts. But what does it say? It says they were led by the Holy Spirit of God. Now listen, I pray that I was led by the Holy Spirit of God To share this message tonight. In my preparation. In my delivery tonight. And I believe that's how God works. I believe he inspires. But it's not the same way he inspired Peter. To write this book. It's not the same way he inspired Moses. To write the first five books of the Old Testament. Listen. Every word that they wrote. Were in without error. Every word they wrote. Were inspired in a supernatural. Unique way. Much greater. Than some preacher that gets up. To share. One of the things I love and appreciate about our church and about our leadership is the devotion that we have to the Word of God. And I don't need to tell you, sadly, this is becoming more uncommon in occurrences in the church today. More and more churches, it seems, are following progressive Christianity and allowing their understanding of the authority of God's Word to be compromised in some way. To slip away. We should thank God that he's given us a church that stands on the holy word of God. You see, when I stand up here tonight like I am on Wednesday. Or when I stand up and preach in the same pulpit on Sunday morning. I'm not standing on my own authority. I'm standing on the authority of God's word. And that's where the confidence comes from. That's where the power comes from. It's from God himself. God himself. As pressures mount on on our lives to cave in to the whims and the compromises of the world, listen, it's gonna be harder and harder to stand up for what's true. It's gonna be harder and harder to stand up for what's right. We've talked about some you know legislation going through Congress and we've talked about some some ways they're trying to, you know, make it where it's gonna be more difficult to to share truths about what the Bible says, and it won't happen overnight. If this legislation passes, then what will happen is it will be a gradual deterioration of the government and how they view churches, and eventually they could come in and say, you know, you can't say that. That's discriminatory. That's uh, hurtful. And yet, if it's what God's Word says, we're going to have to make a choice. Are we going to say what God's Word says, even at the risk of being shut down or imprisoned, or are we going to go along to get along? I read about an apparently unbelieving CBS reporter who had interviewed the noted Bible scholar and teacher John MacArthur. And after the interview, the reporter told Dr. MacArthur this, I think I can finally see the difference now between a true Christian and a false Christian. A true Christian is really into studying the Bible, end quote. I believe that that unbelieving reporter stumbled upon a very true evaluation of one of the most important aspects of true Christianity, and it's it's certainly an important one, and that is we've got to study God's Word. We've got to be in His Word, to be strong, to grow and mature. There's no alternative. There's, There's no substitute. You see, as the world gets darker, the Word shines brighter. Look at the last part of verse 19 again. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Well, there's so much to unpack here. Let's read that verse again, okay? Last part of verse 19. Let's go over this. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, the Greek word translated dark is literally murky. We're familiar with uh, Psalm one nineteen one o five. 105. It says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The very next chapter from what Pastor Mike read tonight from Psalm 118. The darker or murkier the world gets... Or the darker or murkier our situation gets, maybe in marriage or family or school or job, the brighter the Word shines and is more precious to us all the time. The point is this, we're to study and heed the Scriptures. That's why verse 19 says, you will do well to pay attention. But how many times do we know people that aren't paying attention to God's Word? They're not having their daily devotion. They're not having their quiet time. They're not reading the scriptures. They long to have peace. They long to trust in Christ. But they're not reading the word. We study the Old Testament and the New Testament. We study the prophecies of Christ. The fulfillment of the the prophecies of Christ. When it was fulfilled when he came at Bethlehem. The, the, The fulfillment of future prophecies that will come when Jesus comes back. Because the scripture is a light that guides us in a dark and dangerous world. So scripture is to be heeded. This is descriptive language. We're to heed the word of God like a light shines in a dark place. What does it say? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What does that mean? It means the word of God is like a light. It shows us how to walk in the dark forest of the world. It reveals the narrow path we're to follow. And listen... If you're walking in the darkness and you have the light, you can see the stones that will make you stumble along the way. You will see the dangerous pits that you could fall into. And you will see, listen, this is kind of scary. You'll see the poisonous creatures as they slither out of the brush. But without the light, you're at the mercy of all of those things that can harm you. The word of God will show us how to walk until the day is dawn. What day? The the day of Jesus' return. And that day, the morning star, Christ himself, will arise in our hearts and perfect us. That's something we have to look forward to. That's encouragement for us. It'll be fulfilled one day. Listen, we talk about being saved. I'm saved tonight. I got saved when I was nine years old. And I trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And God transformed my heart. He gave me a new heart. Gave me the confidence that I could go to heaven when I die. It gave me abundant life through Jesus. But then we think about that day when our, our salvation will be complete. When our salvation will be made perfected as Peter talks about. Fulfilled. And we'll be transformed into the image of Christ. And we will see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2. We need Hope. And those people in Boulder, Colorado, they need hope tonight in the midst of the darkness. Those families of that gunman down in Atlanta that went in and shot up those massage parlors, they need hope tonight. They need comfort. There's a website called despair.com. You can imagine what kind of website it is just by the title. It promotes itself with the slogan, We Offer the Cure for Hope. Despair.com has posters you can purchase, one which reads this, Despair, it always gets darkest just before it fades to pitch black. You know, that's, that's really the, the outlet mo- most people have in our world today. If they don't have the hope of Christ, if they don't have the light of the world, they just think it's going to get darker Too many people live without hope, going from one dark event, one dark experience, to another. I wonder if that's how the Jews felt in the time just before Jesus was born. They had been a privileged people, one of the only groups allowed to self-rule within the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar had granted these rights because Judaism itself was older than Rome itself. But then came Octavius who instituted a census which was to occur every 14 years and it did for the next two centuries. So what's the big idea about a census? Well, ancient empires took censuses in order to tax the people. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) This simple event was a signal to the Jewish people that their favored status was in the process of being revoked and that they, like everyone else, was nothing more than a conquered, subjected people. Simply having Romans in the land would have seemed pretty dark, but having them prepare to tax you would seem even darker. It would probably feel like pitch black. It would be a return to slavery, a proverbial return to Egypt and the bondage they were in before the exodus that were stunning on Sunday mornings but in this dark situation as Luke proceeds in his nativity narrative the angels appear and they announce good news a savior a messiah the Lord has been born and his coming has brought favor to be restored to God's people Contrary to despair.com and the assertion they have, it wasn't darkest just before it faded to pitch black. It was darkest just before the light of the world dispelled the darkness and came in to offer salvation. And oh, I can't wait for Palm Sunday. So we celebrate Jesus saves. Jesus saves. When Jesus spoke to the people, he said this in John 8:12, "I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life." In verses 20 and 21, regarding the future, God always shows us the big picture, but not always every little detail. Look at 20 and 21. Knowing this first of all, That no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? Verse 21 tells us, Someone cannot interpret Scripture however they want. Scripture is to be interpreted by other Scripture, And by the Holy Spirit who indwells us as believers and we we possess the truth. Make sure you understand, no prophecy is a private interpretation, Peter warns. Because there's no such thing as private interpretation of Scripture. I love hearing Bible teaching and, and reading commentaries because it's wonderful to see How regarding the basic truths of the Christian life, godly authors always line up with what is true. I would be sadly mistaken as your teacher if I said, hey, I've just been reading Daniel and now I understand how we're to pray. We're to pray three times a day, morning, noon, and night. We're to face Jerusalem and we're to pray with our windows open. I mean, that's in Scripture, right? Now, if I read a little further in Matthew 6, 6, I would see Jesus specifically telling us to pray in a closet so that we wouldn't be seen of men. That's true too. That's scripture. And then a little bit further, and Paul instructs us not to pray three times a day. He says, pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Now, some liberal scholars will take those and they'll say, well, that just shows you can't trust scripture. Look at the contradictions. Look at how one says this, the other says that. They possibly both cannot be true. That is illogical. Well, it's not illogical when you understand no scripture stands by itself in total isolation. That is why at Welford Church, we are absolutely committed to going through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book. And I encourage you to do this in your own devotional life. Study the Word of God in the same way. Because not only is interpretation never given to individuals exclusively, but scriptures are totally linked together in context. That doctrine or theology is, is true and in full counsel of the way God wants it to be when we read it in the text the way it is intended. And when Peter speaks about prophecy or what will come, the big picture of what the future holds is really all we need to live confidently when you think about it. Let me give you a word picture, okay? Uh, For those of us who are fans of either a son or a daughter or a grandchild who's in sports, participates competitively, which is pretty much all of us, (laughs) For my situation, Caroline runs track, and I get extremely nervous every time she runs, okay? Um, because, you know, I want her to do well, and I, I don't want her to, you know, get hurt. And I remember Adrian when she ran track, she ran hurdles. And you talk about getting nervous about that, you know? I mean, I was afraid she was going to trip over those or fall or break her neck. Well, why do we get so nervous? Because we want our children or our grandchildren to do well and finish strong, And we can't see into the future. We don't know what's going to happen. How many times have you been watching a basketball game for your favorite team and it comes down to overtime and your palms get a little sweaty, you get a little nervous, you have a hard time watching. I know people who will walk out of the room when their their team they're pulling for is is close to either winning or losing. They can't handle it. It's so nerve-wracking. However, when I record Caroline on video and she's running track and she does well and I have that video, I can watch it in a much more relaxed state because I know it went okay. She did well. That happened just last week, last Friday night. She ran at Burns in a track meet and she did well. Out of 12, she came in fifth and I had it on video. So when I rewatched it, I was like, hey, I know what she's going to do. You know? And that was so good. Would you prefer ahead of time... To know the big picture, whether someone will win or lose, absolutely. If you could know the big picture of life ahead of time, wouldn't you be more comfortable as life unfolds? My point is, when I'm uncertain about my future, I can enjoy knowing that God has told me at least enough to see the big picture. Sure, I'd like to know some details about some situations I'm concerned about, I worry over. The Bible says not to worry, but I'd like to know what's going to happen. How's this going to turn out? But if we knew that no matter what happened, our loved ones and ourselves would be okay, wouldn't that be enough? And neither does the Bible tell us every detail about our future. It spares us most of them, and yet it gives us an overall picture. Intelligent design expert Hugh Ross points out the confidence that we can have In the Holy Scriptures. Look at what he says. Approximately 2,500 prophecies appear in the pages of the Bible. About 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled to the letter. No errors. The remaining 500 or so reach into the future. And may be seen unfolding as the days go by. Since the probability for any single one of these prophecies being fulfilled by chance averages less than 1 in 10, and since the prophecies are for the most part independent of one another, watch this, the odds for all these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. That's 10 with 2,000 zeros after it. In other words, we can rest assured that whatever God has said would happen, has happened, and whatever God says will happen, will eventually come to pass. And while we're not given every detail about the future in Scripture, we're given enough information for us to believe and have comfort and confidence that we can trust the Bible with all certainty. Even Jesus, the Bible says, did not know the precise day or hour that he would return. Matthew 24, 36. No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What does that mean? It means while Jesus walked on earth as we do now, he waived some of his divine rights. We should be encouraged because we're not given every detail about the future. Jesus didn't know it either. But as we're given the big picture, we can have confidence that it's going to come to pass the way God says. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the man is doomed to destruction. For a first sermon in a preaching class at an American seminary, an African student named Lawrence chose a text describing the joy that we'll share when Christ ushers us into our heavenly home. Here's what he said, I quote. I've been in the U.S. for several months now. I've seen the great wealth that is here, the fine homes and cars and clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here too. But I've yet to hear one sermon on heaven Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven. People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little. So we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. Think about it. He's right. We Americans can be so full of ourselves, we don't think we need God. We can be so insulated from pain and suffering, we don't think we need heaven. But that doesn't mean that we have it right. God tells us that heaven is waiting for us repeatedly in the scriptures. He even says part of a natural instinct in all of us is to long for the day when everything will be made right. Aren't you looking forward to that day? No more sickness, no more pain, no more suffering, no more uh, problems, no more complexities that we can't figure out. Jesus doesn't tell us everything about our futures, but he says he will hold us into the future. And what's fascinating is that we're quite capable of of following what Jesus says. Our minds are an amazing organ. Our brains can actually process a group of words even when they're not spelled correctly. So I want you to look at these words and see if you can read along with me, okay? The human mind is a wonderfully complex organ. You see? It doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word appear. The only important thing is that the first and last letter are in the right place. The rest can be a total mess and you can still read it without a problem. This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a whole. Amazing, isn't it? You see, like the world around us, like life itself, it doesn't always make sense. It's not always in the right order. But when we take a step back and we remember that God is the alpha and the omega. The beginning and the end. The first and the last. We can rest assured that one day it's all going to be made perfectly clear. All we have to do is trust him in the process. I don't know what your future holds any more than I know what my future holds. But I know how our future will end if we trust in Jesus Christ. And that should give us hope to confidently live for Him. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit WelfordChurch.org. Blessings.